Good morning. Good morning. Carry on as you are. Good morning. Please do take a seat. Good morning. Um, good morning. My name's Michael. I'm one of the clergy here at HCC, obviously. Uh, and um, welcome. Uh, some of us, we don't know each other. For many of you, this is your first time at church, so welcome. And I just thought at the top of what I'm about to do these next 20 minutes, I thought I should lay my cards on the table. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell a little story and that'll explain what I'm going to try and do. If you've heard the story before, don't turn to your neighbour and be like, I've heard this one. Just pretend like it's a new original story and then laugh at the punchline. Right, so there's a guy and he works in a factory. And at the end of the night, he's walking out with a wheelbarrow and he's got a box and the security guard stops him and goes, what's that? He says, it's a box. I can see it's a box, what's inside? He goes, well, at the end of the day, I sweep up the sawdust because I need it for my house and I put it in the box and I'm taking it home. Security guard says, open the, open the box. Opens the box, sawdust. On your way. Next day, same thing happens. What's that? It's a box. What's inside? Sawdust. Open it up, sure enough. Third day, wheelbarrow, box. Fourth day, same thing. Fifth day, wheelbarrow, box. What's inside the box? Sawdust. The security guard says, I know you're up to something. I'll tell you what, why don't you tell me what it is? And I promise I won't report you. The guy says, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. Now, (laughs) now, when we, when we come, the reason I tell you this, the reason I tell you this is because what, what I want to do is I want to acknowledge right at the top there are some massive boxes that we're going to come across today. And I, I, you know, I'm sure you're like me that you want me to preach for four hours. And Jago says it's not what you want. I know it's what you want. No. But, so because we can't do this all day, what I'm going to do is I'm going to acknowledge there are lots of boxes that we're going to come across. Okay, because this collection of books, the Bible as it's commonly known, this collection of books, all of us are coming at it from different perspectives. All of us. No one's neutral. So maybe on this side, you've got people that were told as children or in life, they came to accept that this collection of books is the authoritative word of God. There's nothing wrong with it. And then you've got people here and people on this part of the scale, they might have been told these stories as children. And through their experiences or through what they heard at university, they've realized that they are just stories. They're not true. They're impossible to be true. They're sweet. So when I tell the story of Jesus calming the storm, you'll be like, oh, classic. And then on this side, and on this side, you've got people that actually this collection of books was forced upon you. And the fact that I'm holding it up already is conjuring up inside of you. How dare they? Or you grew up in a house. Or you grew up in a house where actually you've never read the Bible. And this was disdain. This is just kind of bigoted manifesto kind of hypocrisy. So we're all, we're all here. So what I want to do for the next 20 minutes, I want to be really controversial. We're going to look at a book. We're going to look at an account from Mark's gospel. And what I want to do is I want to pluck out Mark's gospel from the whole Bible. And let's just look at Mark. Is that okay? Okay, so when we, when we come to this, if, if, at the end of your rows, there's going to be the passage. It's on a white little piece of paper. We just thought we'd give you the bit that we're going to look at. And when we come to the passage, we need to see, you know, what's going on here? Why did Mark write this? 
There's four Gospels. They've all got the same. The reason that they were written is the same thing, to tell the story of Jesus Christ. But the purpose, what it, well, the heart of why they were writing is different. And Mark, he's in Rome in the early 60s. And in 64 AD, there's a massive fire in Rome. And the Christians, they, they are blamed for it. And thus begins a massive, unprecedented persecution of Christians. They're slaughtered in the streets. And Mark goes, well, I've got all these Christian leaders around me and Peter and James, Jesus' brother, who actually saw Jesus with their own eyes. And then he goes, I need to write down all of this historical evidence. I need to put it down. I need to get it out there quickly before they die. Hence why Mark is so short, 14 chapters. I've got to write it and I've got to get it out there. Now, we come to our first box, don't we? Some of you are thinking, you can't believe that. Come on. Well, let's look at it the other way around. Imagine you come for dinner with me and my wife. We've opened some nice claret. You say, you know what? Do you mind if we just read together Josephus? And I say, why do you want to do that? He goes, well, I just love him. Josephus, he's a Jewish historian that wrote around the time of Jesus. In fact, he wrote about Jesus. Some of the things he did, wrote about his death. And then he wrote about a small group of people that believed he rose again. That's that's a fact. No one one denies that this is what he wrote. So when you say, let's read Josephus, and I say, did he really write that? And was he really around? You'd say, no one disagrees. No one disagrees. So why do we have this hierarchy of things? Remember, we're not talking about the Bible, we're just talking about Mark. There's nothing to suggest it wasn't written in the 60s. Nothing. So, that's the first box. We're going to come up. I know, and I know for some of us, you're sitting there going, that wasn't good enough. Now, what I'm doing is I'm highlighting that there's boxes. And I'm highlighting that there is a response. So let's begin a, you know, a kind of discussion. Hence why I'm just constantly going to keep referring to Alpha on a Tuesday. There, my cards are on the table. Come to Alpha. I know what you're thinking when you see the kind of public... I'm on the screen. Um, that's weird. Um, when you see the alpha publicity, you must, you know, you look at your postcard and you must go, these people don't have a mortgage and they're all beautiful. And, and, the, and, and but, 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 you know, the point is alpha, alpha's for anyone, no matter what age or stage you're at. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was, I went off. Point. So, and, so, so then, so then, so then a, a, another box, just really quickly before we get to the passage. Some people will say, well, how, how do we know that Mark wasn't tampered with? How do we know? Well, what evidence is there? Now, some parts of the New Testament, very difficult. We need to grapple with when it was written and how it was written, why and what purpose, but not Mark, especially not the passage that we're going to go. There is literally no evidence to assume that this has been tampered with at all. So, let's get to it. Mark, chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. Jesus calms the storm. Classic. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, 
rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, there are some massive issues here. Massive. And the major problem is that Mark actually thinks Jesus did this. Have a look with me at verse 39. He, Jesus, got up, rebuked the waves, and said to the waves, still be quiet. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Basically, the writer, Mark, is, he's basically arguing that Jesus' words provoked a response in nature. Could have gone for an easier passage, for sure. But. So, let's, grab, let's get with the nitty gritty. Is this an eyewitness account? That's the first thing. Was anyone there that could have actually seen this? Well, the way it's written suggests that it was. Have a look with me at all these little bits. Verse 35, it's the detail that's important. That day at the time, when evening came. Verse 36, there were also other boats with them. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping in a cushion. Now, why is all that important? Well, we have to read Mark in the context of what he's written. It's not like Mark is in a modern-day kind of mockumentary. You know, like this is Spinal Tap or The Office. It's not like he had this kind of framework of pretending like something was real when we all know it's scripted. That's just not what it, what it is. That's not, that wasn't in his framework of writing. So either this is an eyewitness, he's writing down an eyewitness account and Mark believed it to be true, i.e., read all the other historians, it reads like that, or this is an entirely new genre of writing. Groundbreaking. Now, another box. Is this story likely? Surely this just sounds a bit weird. Well, let's, let's think of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is not like a kind of small lake, you know, like when you, know, when you go and you feed the ducks or you go on like romantic walks. It's, it's not like that. It's like it's big. And it's surrounded by mountains. And in the south, there's a cleft. And what happens, this is, we, we know this to be true, what happens is southwest wind came in through the cleft and it basically the sea became like a basin. And there you go, there's your storm. That's how we know it happens. In fact, we can go even further. We can say that we know for a fact that there was less wind at night. Why do fishermen, why do they fish at night? Because there's less wind. We know that in the afternoons, storms were more likely. We also know that in the early evenings when they did happen, which was very occasionally, they would be massive storms. So the story is likely. So where are we at with what we're looking at? That this was an event that was seen by someone. It was relayed to Mark. It was not tampered with, nor written hundreds of years later. And the evidence that a storm could appear out of nowhere is true. So this is the crux, isn't it? This is the big one. Is there any chance this man, Jesus, who claimed to be God, could he control nature with his words? 
Now, I acknowledge we're not in box territory anymore. <laughs> we're in like, you know, wheelbarrow, if not massive questions. Is there any chance? Because that's what we want to grapple with, isn't it? We don't want to mess around with did Mark write it. Could Jesus have done this? And what I want to do is I want to highlight an argument that I think is plausible and maybe we can grapple with it at Alpha on Tuesday, either at 10 a.m. or 7.30. Because Mark believed that Jesus was God. This is how he opens his gospel. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus himself believed he was God. The early Christians around this time believed he was God. They died. That's how much they thought that he was God. How could a thinking person reconcile that Jesus, claiming to be God, could miraculously enter and distort the logic of this world? Because it's logical, isn't it? Mountains, cleft, wind, storm. Logic. We all know that. Storms don't just happen. It feels like that in England. But, you know, the water doesn't just come from nowhere. It doesn't just appear. There is logic. There's a pattern. Because we live in a world of patterns, don't we? From the very big to the very small, there are patterns. There's a reason for things. There's a pattern in this story. And even his disciples, they're they're not asking him to do what he does. Verse 38, they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? They're not saying do anything. They're just saying, do you not care? It is impossible. And one thing that we need to get our heads around is the idea of there's not just the created, but a creator. And patterns are a way for the creator to hold the world together for us. Otherwise, it would be uninhabitable. That we need these patterns to live the seasons, the way storms come about. We need these patterns. Now, if there is a creator, and he's created this world of patterns and logic, then it is plausible that that creator could enter that world and stop those patterns to reveal something about who he is. I heard a great illustration about this that kind of helped with the complexity of it. Imagine your favorite fiction book or imagine a fiction book, yeah? And in the first few chapters or the first few books of this fiction novel, or fiction series, the author sets out the kind of limits of the world, whatever that world is, whatever fantasy world. And there's, you know, there's kind of, this is the world that we inhabit. And then what happens is suddenly out of the blue to kind of highlight the importance of a character or the importance of a storyline, they break those boundaries. And so we know this is important. And what it's doing is it makes the story better. So the question, could Jesus be God who created everything, enter the logic and pattern of our universe and change it to reveal something about himself? That's the question. That's the question. And and, and the question that we all ask ourselves is the one the disciples ask in verse 41. They were terrified. Have a look with me. Asked each other, who is this? Is Jesus just a man? Or is he the writer of everything, the writer of all the patterns that hold our lives together? 
It's a massive question. It'd be very easy for me to finish on that question, you know, because we'd be like, that's quite a big question. But let's, let's, you know, we've looked at these boxes, we've looked at that big question, and now let's look even bigger to the great pattern in humanity, the ultimate pattern in humanity. Have a look with me at, at verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? No faith. You want the disciples to say, well, we do now. That was amazing. But he's saying, he, he's saying you should have had faith before this. Everything you've seen and heard, everything that I've taught, you should have had faith. And there's a deeper question, isn't there? Have you ever thought or heard someone say, or maybe said to yourself, before I believe, I need God to prove it. Before I believe, I need him to do this. I need him to rescue me from this situation. I need God to change the world before I could believe in a good God. Now, Most areas of our life are more advanced than any other point in human history. That's true. But what's not true is that all areas of life are better than at any point in human history. Some people say, well, this century um, has been the least violent in terms of war. We're only 18 years in. Last century was the worst that we've ever had in our humanity in terms of war and violence amongst us. That's a fact. The divide between the worst off and the most well off has increased. Now, there's legitimate arguments and about you know, you know, politics and kind of international relations, but you know, humanity has had time to fix these things. It's not like we've only just appeared. We've been here for, you know, varies on whoever you ask. We've been here a long time. And I'm not just fear-mongering. I'm not just saying, look at how bad the world is. What I'm wanting to do is I'm pointing out the inherent absurdity that people claim that if you remove religion from the world, it gets a better place in every area of society. That is just not true. Now, you can look at international and you can look at national, but then we can look at personal. There are more people depressed in the West than there has ever been in the history of humanity, period. You know, it's not like like everything is just okay. Loneliness, rampant in in our nation. Here's a weird thought. Loneliness is actually high. We have a high percentage here in London than across the rest of the country. It's crazy. Because think about it like this. We probably, and look, I am going to be biased, but we, pro- we, we might live in the greatest city in the world ever. No, we, no but seriously, think, you know, think, you know, in 500 years, 1,000 years, what will they say about our city? And our big problem is loneliness. 
So, you know, humanity, there seems to be this pattern that something isn't quite right. And then there's deeper than that. We all suffer from the imperfections in our lives. Whether it's flittering guilt or lifelong shame. The pattern of humanity and of this world is it's not perfect. It's why I can say something like this. I can say there are problems in the world today and most people wouldn't disagree with me. There are problems in the world today. We all agree with that. And that is the pattern of humanity. And our response usually to God is fix it. Couldn't believe in a God if he didn't fix it. Convince me. Answer me. Prove it to me. And those are genuine questions. And yet the question that Jesus asked his disciples is the same that is given to us. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Faith in what? Because I, th- I think, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I think most of us would assume that the world should be a better place. That this is not kind of like, this is as good as it's ever going to be. We don't look at London and go, this is what the best we can hope for. We assume that the world should be and could be a better place. So how does that happen? Who is going to change it? It's not going to change from the air. Who? Who is going to change it? Faith in whom to make that decision, to make that change? Politicians? Fair enough. A hero? family member, a friend, yourself, myself? Who? Who is going to make that change? Who's going to put it right? Because otherwise the other thing is, well, this is just as good as it gets. Who? Now, the, the argument of Mark is Jesus, obviously, because we're in a church and we're a Christian. Be weird if I just Roy. <laughs> <clears throat> And the story says Jesus. There's a broken humanity and broken people and they are fixed by Jesus' death on the cross. That's why our stained glass window, we've got the screen in it, stained glass window, it's not of Jesus on the lake with the storm. It's Jesus on the cross because it's the cross. That event puts everything right and will one day make everything perfect both in the whole world and in our own personal hearts. That's the good news. That's the good news of Christianity. And therefore, we are called to say, yes, there are things wrong in the world. Yes, there are things wrong in me. I'm not perfect. I myself sin. Now, sin sin is a massive box. It's a massive word that encompasses a lot, but when I'm trying to do a big word, I'll just do that. But you know, it's a massive word. And part of what that word kind of, kind of unravels for us is the idea that none of us are perfect. That's what it means. Not so massive. So we see that you know, inside of us there's sin, there's sin in the world. That's the pattern of humanity. We see a Christ who is different from that humanity. And then we go, well, I don't know everything. And then we go, thankfully, I don't know everything because I'm not God. And I'm going to put my trust somewhere. And I'm going to put my trust in the guy that died for me. 
I'm going to trust in that God. That's, that's what I'm going to, that's, I'm just going to trust in him. So we see the pattern of humanity. We see that we need saving and it starts. Our humanity all needs saving, but it starts with me. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not some kind of superstitious, oh, I'll cling to my cross and hope it's the right one. Or, you know, I was born in Britain, so I've got to go at Christmas. You know, that's, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is saying there's something wrong. And Jesus has come to fix it. I'm bad. He's good. So I'm going to follow him. The fundamentals of the Christian faith. So how do we respond? How do we respond to these boxes and then this big idea of a creator who entered history and then an even bigger idea that something wrong with humanity that Jesus can fix? What do we do with that? Well, there's this weird thing. I, I do it because sometimes I get a bit confused and I also go off piece, so it just helps me. So I'm sorry that it sounds a bit weird. But A, B, C, D. A. I absolutely believe it. I believed it before I walked in. Thanks very much for encouraging me. Looking forward to seeing a song. D, don't believe a word of it. Thank you so much for not shouting out during this. Thank you. I hope that you've had a nice time. I hope you've enjoyed the songs. Um, we would love to, we genuinely, we'd love to have you on Alpha. Unpack these things. But if not, have a great week and maybe see you again. C, there's no way I'm buying that there's something inherently wrong with humanity and Jesus can fix everything. I may not even believe that Jesus was created God, but there's enough here to consider it. There's enough here to kind of go, yeah, I'm, I, might, I could ask that a bit more. If that's you, we have Alpha on Tuesday. <laughs> um, where we just kind of go, okay, hold on a minute, let's take... 100 steps back. Hold on, hold on. So if that's you, we'd love to see you at Alpha. If you can't make the first week, second week is great. First week's better, but second week is still good. That's Tuesday, 7.30 or 10 a.m. B, I've never heard the Christian faith put like that. And today I know I need to make a decision to follow Jesus. I know the need for Jesus. And today, I'm going to say it for the first time. I'm going to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I need to say, I'm sorry. I need Jesus. That's why the focal point of church is all, it's always Jesus. Always Jesus. A, B, C, D. So the truth is, I could just say it doesn't matter. But the truth is, it does. These are massive questions. These are not just like, do you want to go to the pub? Yes or no? He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Because the answer to that could change everything. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give us a moment, you know, because I talk quite quickly and I also wave my hands around and get, you know, and sweat a little bit. And I'm just going to give us just a few minutes just to kind of go, okay, hold on, hold on. You know, honestly, in my heart, where am I? What do I really think? And then I'm going to say a prayer. And if you want to 
pray the prayer with me. If you're like a bee, I'm, I, this is me. I'm making that decision today. This is going to be the first time. Either I used to believe and now I believe. Or I never believed and I believe. I'm going to let you pray this prayer along with me. I'll do it line by line. You just pray it in your heart. So I'm going to give us all just a couple of minutes just to think about. I mean, if you don't want to think about that, you can just think about whatever you want. I'm going to pray and then we'll think. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we uh, can come together and discuss openly these things. Would you open the eyes of our heart? Amen. So for those of you that want to recommit um, or commit for the very first time, here's a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to die for my sin. I see that I need him. Help me to follow him from this day forth. Amen. And a prayer for you, a prayer. Heavenly Father, for those that have prayed that, either to recommit or for the very first time commit their lives, I pray that they would know the glory and the wonder and the love that you have poured out for them. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.